welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. Good morning. The reading this morning is taken from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14, to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10. Jesus, the great high priest. Therefore, Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son today. I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up praise and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, He learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Thank you, Rosemary, for that reading. Hey, as Pete mentioned earlier, my name is Mark Lilly and I serve as the uh, senior pastor over at Forestdale, but it's great to be here with you this morning. Um, I just love that story that uh, Dave shared about the experience that the kids had on their deep end camp. I love, the thing I love about kids is their willingness to engage with God and to make themselves vulnerable. I think there's actually, there's something powerful in that for us to take away as adults, as people who are supposed to be further down the track on our journey with God ourselves. Um, I think let's take some of that and, and, and learn from that story that we've heard this morning. Just a, just a fantastic, fantastic story. Hey, we're continuing this morning with our, with our series on Hebrews and we've had two, two messages so far, but just in case you've missed uh, the first couple of weeks and this is your first week, uh, sitting with us in this something uh, better series. I just want to give you a bit of a quick feel for what was actually happening um, for these uh, Hebrew people, for the recipients of this letter that was written 
to Hebrews. But in, in giving you a feel for that, I'm actually going to use something which is um, close to my heart, and it's the West Coast Eagles, okay? I just heard an amen from Brother Brendan down the front there, and Pete's just shaking his head. This is, this is not for you, Pete. Sorry, I feel like coming and putting my arm around Pete. He's a Collingwood supporter. But I just felt this, this, this sort of summarise as well captures some of the essence of, of the book of Hebrews. So I'm sorry, uh, Pete, for uh, the pain this might cause. I'm guessing 70%, 80% of us probably watched the grand final, um, whether you're an Eagle supporter or not. Um, and I'm guessing 99% of us um, know the outcome. The Eagles won and another, another uh, grand final. That's four now. Um, <laughs> in a relatively short history, four, four grand finals are pretty good. But the Eagles at the start of the year, that, that, they were written off by most commentators. Most, those, most so-called uh, experts had written the Eagles off. They, they were tipped to finish outside the top eight and one so-called expert even had them winning the wooden spoon. Carlton have now, I believe, employed that guy. So um, I'm not sure what Carlton's season next year might look like employing a guy who tipped the Premiers to win the wooden spoon, but that's another story. But they, they weren't tipped to have a great season. They had an exodus of players retiring at the end of the year, and they've had a tough year this year. They, through the course of the year, they've lost some of their best players through suspension, through, through long-term injury, and the grand, grand final itself. Um, in the first quarter, if you watch the game, you'll know that the Collingwood were five goals up, five goals up. And I was thinking, man, this is not looking good. This is looking terrible. When they were a couple, two or three goals down, I thought, <laughs> sorry, Pete. I'll give you a hug afterwards, mate. Brendan, just put your arm around Pete and console your brother. But you know, the Eagles stuck to their game plan. Right throughout the year, the Eagles stuck to their game plan. And on the day of the grand final, they were not looking good most of the way through the third quarter and they stuck to their game plan. They had developed a system that worked. Their coach had put together a system, a game plan that he bought into, that the team bought into. And, and in spite of the adversity that they faced before the year even started being written off, they stuck to the plan. They stuck to the system because they had confidence in the system that works. And, and that's basically what the book of Hebrews is about. The book of Hebrews is basically about sticking to the game plan. God has given us this most incredible game plan. And the book of Hebrews is saying, if you want to win the prize, you've got to, you've got to play the full four quarters. You've got to stick at it for the full four quarters. You've got to stick to this plan that I have given to you in my son. You've got to stick to this plan that I've given to you in the form of scripture because it works. If you stick to this stuff, if you hang on, if you keep pushing, you're going to win the prize. It will one day pay off. So the writer to the Hebrews, they're struggling to actually hang on to this faith, their faith at this point. We've heard from Yvette this morning about finding Christ, about finding God, about finding comfort in, in the midst of a storm. These guys were in the midst of a storm. They were struggling to hang on to their faith. So the writer writes to them, encourages them, guys, hang on, keep going, keep going, persevere. And if you stick to this thing for the full four quarters, when the final siren goes, you'll win something far better than another grand final cup or a, or a winner's medallion. 
And Hebrews also paints a picture that there's something better. That's why we've called this series Something Better. Because it's an invitation to a better way of life. The book of Hebrews is this amazing invitation to a better way of life. It's not just, it's not just about hanging on and persevering. It's actually a book that invites us, if you persevere, it will lead to growth. That's our theme for this year, growing deeper. If you persevere, you will grow deeper. And, and if you grow deeper, you'll, you'll live a life of flourishing. So some of the key themes in the book of Hebrews is, is a perseverance. It's about growth. It's about flourishing and it's about finishing well. It's about playing the full four quarters and sticking to the game plan. In chapters one to four, the writer um, has reminded his readers that Jesus himself is the something better. He is so much better than anything that they ever could have possibly imagined or dreamed. And he's unique because he's this, he, he's this God man. He's a God man. He's fully God and he's fully man. And that's why he's so much better. He's so much better than the angels. Brian spoke to us about that in the first week. These angelic heavenly beings who were highly revered as God's special messengers right throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is much better than the angels. And then he unpacks Moses. Moses was probably the most influential, the most significant character in the Old Testament. Jesus is the new Moses. He's a much better version of Moses. Moses had promised the Israelites, that he would lead them into this promised land. He would lead them into the promised land, the land of Israel. But Jesus offers a much better rest. You see, the, the, the land that Moses led them into, they were constantly being invaded by, by superpowers and they never truly entered into the rest that God had for them. But Jesus has come as a new Moses, a better Moses. And the rest that Jesus offers is a better rest. It's a rest that lasts not just for a lifetime, but for all eternity. And we can start to live that better life right here, right now. So the writer encourages them. Why on earth would you want to return to Judaism? Judaism is has been superseded by something that's far better. It's been superseded by someone who is so much better. You see, these people were, were Jewish, they were Hebrews, and they were constantly looking back to what they'd known for generation after generation after generation after generation. And now the something better has come and they're looking back to what they'd known for many generations. And Jesus says, the writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus has come and he superseded that with something better. I am the something better, says Jesus. So don't go back. You know, for us today, the, the, the law for most of us is probably not Judaism. Judaism is not the thing that, that seeks to lure us away, the thing that distracts us from growing, the thing that, that challenges us and, and forces us into this place of having to persevere. But there's still lots and lots of things, I'm sure, in each of our lives. If I asked you to rattle off a list right now, I'm sure you'd all have a list of things that, that, that throughout your Christian journey have sought to distract you, have sought to take your focus 
away from Jesus. And Nick spoke to us last week about the fact that some people come to a point in their journey where their circumstances are so completely overwhelming and they're not hanging on to the something better, the someone better, and they just give up their faith altogether because they just become overwhelmed and overcome by the circumstances of life. I hope that gives you a little bit of a feel for the book of Hebrews and for some of the, some of the themes that run through the book of Hebrews. So coming to today's passage, Rosemary read for us chapter four and five. I wanted you to get um, chapter five just so you get a better feel for the context. But we're actually going to spend most of our time this morning camped out just in those final few verses of chapter four. And those final verses in chapter four contain two key truths, two key truths about Jesus. And those two key truths about Jesus actually function as a foundation, as a basis for two appeals that the writer then issues to the Hebrews. Appeals as to this is how you should live. In light of the fact of these two key truths about Jesus, this is how I want you guys to live. So we're going to look at two key truths and then we're going to look at two appeals. So the first key truth is in verse 14 and it's simply this. We have a great high priest who has ascended. Now for many of us, we live in the 21st century and this, this whole language about priests and high priests and temples, it's, it's pretty foreign. And, and perhaps for you, it conjures up a, a, an image or a picture of Gandalf the Grey, kind of this old stately person in long special robes with a beard and a staff and maybe wearing a special ephod or something like that around their neck. Or maybe for you, it just conjures up this, this picture of somebody who leads people in special religious ceremonies and rituals, who leads people in worship. But don't forget, the writer to the Hebrews is writing to Jewish people. They got this stuff. They were familiar with this stuff. This was the kind of language. These were the kind of themes that they were familiar with as Jewish people. So when the writer to the Hebrews starts talking about the high priest, they got this stuff. They got this stuff. It made sense to them. Their ears are opening and what the writer says to them at this point would have been pretty radical, would have been pretty radical. The first ever high priest in the Old Testament was Moses' brother, Aaron. And every high priest, every priest from that point on was a descendant from Aaron's family. And the, the, the high priest had a really important role in, in the spiritual life of every Jewish person because the high priest was the, the one that functioned as the main representative between Israel and God. They had this intermediary type function. They were the go-between between God and between people. If you wanted to come to God, you'd, you'd go through the priesthood. The high priest, amongst all of, from amongst all of the priests, the high priest had a very special role. The high priest had a very unique role because the high priest was the only one, was the only one who in the temple could enter the most holy place. Only the high priest got to go into the holy of holies, into the most holy, the most sacred place, the most special place. And they got to do it once a year. They got to do it once a year on the day of atonement. Verse 14 tells us 
that Jesus is our high priest, but it uses a superlative. It says Jesus was not just a high priest. He's not just the high priest. He's our great high priest. He's our great high priest. And he's our great high priest because Jesus himself comes from an entirely different order of priesthood altogether. Jesus is in a class of his own. Jesus is without measure, without equal. Jesus is great because, as I said earlier, he's the son of God. He's this unique combination of God and man. And Jesus, unlike any other priest, any other high priest that had come before, Jesus is entirely without sin. So Jesus doesn't have to make atonement for his sin because Jesus was sinless. Jesus' priesthood is eternal. It lasts forever and forever and forever. Jesus himself was the sin offering for our sin, for our sin. No other high priest had ever done that. And that was the thing that makes the new covenant better because the sacrifice was so much better. They didn't have to continue bringing sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year. Jesus himself was the once and for all offering. So the covenant that Jesus has created for us is so much better than the old covenant. Jesus' offering was not made just merely in an earthly tabernacle, but in a heavenly tabernacle. And unlike with the old covenant, his offering was made once and for all. It was final and it lasts forever. So Jesus is better. Absolutely everything about Jesus is light years ahead of anything that the Hebrews had ever known. And the writer goes on to further illustrate just how superior Jesus is, as if that's not enough. He goes on to further highlight how superior this Jesus that they've started to follow actually is. Because Jesus, it says, has ascended into heaven. Some translations actually say that Jesus has ascended not just into the heavens, but through, beyond the heavens. He's the one who sits above the entire universe. He's the one who has power and authority over the entire universe. This is not something that any other high priest had ever done previously, and this is not something that any other high priest is ever going to do again. And because Jesus has all power and all authority, he's now in the business of reconciling you and I. He's now in the business of reconciling the entire universe to himself. We read about that in the book of Colossians, that Jesus is reconciling this entire universe to himself because he is the one who is superior, who is sitting above the heavens and above the earth. This is Jesus. This is the Jesus that you've started following. This is the Jesus that you've started following. So keep going, he says. So that's the first key truth and that leads us into appeal number one. So the first appeal is this. It's in verse 14. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. These Jews had expressed their allegiance to Jesus. They'd put a marker in the sand and they said yes to Jesus. They had started following Jesus well. But then the challenges of life start to roll in. 
a little bit like it does for all of us when we say yes to Jesus. The, the challenges started to roll in and their challenges were in the form of Judaism and a, and, and a pull, a lure from Judaism to return to an old way of doing things. And they were actually at this point in, in, in some danger of, of losing their faith, of walking away. But because, because they have such a great high priest, because they have such a great high priest, they're able to hold on firmly. They can hold on firmly because they have a great high priest. I want you just for a moment to picture a cliff. And if, if you want to close your eyes, close your eyes, because some of us do better. Um, imagining with, um, with our eyes closed, but I want you to just imagine a sheer cliff face. Imagine a cliff face that goes for hundreds of metres that way. And it's just like this. It's sheer. Now I want you to imagine that you are on that cliff face. I want you to imagine that you're on the cliff face and you're hundreds of metres up. And there's no harness. There's no safety rope. You're free climbing at this point up a cliff face. And, and for the first couple of hundred metres, there's been lots of good good things that you'd hang on to. There's been rocks sticking out of this cliff face. There's been little crags in the rocks and crevices that, that you've been able to get a foothold in, that you've been able to wrap your hands around and to hold yourself. But now you're getting to a point where you're running out of good options. And you are literally a couple of hundred metres up in the air. And you're literally hanging on by your fingertips. There's perhaps a temptation for us reading the book of Hebrews and reading about this idea of perseverance and getting that kind of picture. That's what it's like to persevere as a Christian. That's what the writer is talking about here when, when he or she talks about holding on firmly. But I don't think the writer to the Hebrews is talking about a hanging by your fingertips kind of dangling, gritting your teeth kind of faith. I don't think that the picture here is one of somebody free climbing up a cliff face and hanging on and if you kind of just let go, you're going to plummet to your death. I don't think that's the picture that we're, that we're intended to get at this point. I think that the picture here is more of one of embracing Jesus. It's more a picture of us embracing the stuff about Jesus that we know to be true, the stuff that the scriptures tell us about. This word holding on, it's, it's a word that's used in the Gospels and Jesus holds on to somebody and then he proceeds to heal them. He takes hold of the person and he proceeds to heal them. It's also a word that's used of the Pharisees holding on to their traditions. They held on to their traditions. So this idea of holding on, I think it's, it's talking about taking a firm grip of something. It's actually about embracing something or it's actually about embracing someone I think that's the picture that we're meant to have a picture of us embracing what we know to be true about Jesus the fact that he loves us the fact that he came and died for us the fact that he went through that because he cares because he wants to reconcile us to himself that's the stuff that we need to hang on to we need to be hanging on to and embracing the person of Jesus. This is not a grit your teeth, hang on by the tips of your fingernails kind of, kind of scenario. 
And I think for any of us, if we get to a stage where we are finding it difficult to hold on firmly like this, where we're finding it difficult to embrace Jesus, I think, I think we need to actually at that point perhaps examine our, our view of Jesus. Is our Jesus big enough? I've just painted a picture of Jesus as somebody who is high, who's lifted up, who has all power, who has all authority. Is our picture of Jesus big enough? Do we have a clear picture of who Jesus is and what it is that he has done for you? What it is that he's doing in this world in reconciling it to himself? Because our great high priest, he's in a class of his own. He's light years ahead of anybody else. There's nobody that's ever been like this Jesus that we follow. And there will never, ever be another like this Jesus that we follow. If we have a kind of small view of Jesus, a kind of watered down view of our high priest, it's kind of hard to hang on to that. But if we have a picture of a big Jesus, that helps us to hold on. And it helps us to hold on because it's his greatness, it's his goodness that helps us to hold on. It's not about us hanging on to him in our own capacity, our strength, our ability, because we're all frail. And our fingers wear out after a while. We can only hang on for so long, but, but we have a great, we have a great high priest who helps us to hold on. We have a great high priest who sustains us, whose goodness, whose face is always is always shining upon us. He looks at us with delight and with favour. When you see Jesus in that way, when you see Jesus in that way, when you know his favour for you, it's far easier for us to hold on and to embrace that Jesus. So the first appeal is hold on to Jesus. Hold on to your faith. Don't give up, no matter what it is that you're facing. Don't give up because you have a high priest who is unique. You have a high priest who is great. You have a high priest who has power and authority to actually do stuff in your life. Moving on to the second truth, and, and that comes in verse 15. Verse 15, we have a great high priest who empathises with our weakness and was tempted just as we are. We have a great high priest who empathises with our weaknesses and was tempted just as we are. I've just spoken about how, how Jesus is high and lifted up and, and he ascended through the heavens. But before Jesus ascended through the heavens... He was down here. He was down here on earth. <clears throat> Jesus got amongst it. He got his hands dirty. He walked with people. He rubbed shoulders with everyday people who are probably just like you and I. Jesus needed to eat. He needed to sustain himself. He needed to drink. Jesus was a carpenter. I'm guessing if he hit his thumb with a hammer, it hurt. Jesus perspired. He felt the heat. He felt the cold. Jesus was a man. He was a human, just like us. You see, as much as we have a great high priest who is high and lifted up and sits above the universe, 
That doesn't mean that our great high priest sits far off, removed and disconnected from us and our experience. You see, Jesus has actually been in the thick of it. He's been down here on earth as a human in the thick of life, in the rough and tumble of life. Jesus has experienced pain. He's experienced temptation and loneliness. Jesus knows what it is to experience sorrow and betrayal. He knows what it is to experience and to feel finite limitation, to feel weakness. Verse 15 tells us that when Jesus was on earth, he was tempted just as we are, in every way just as we are. But even though Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, he did not sin. And I think what the writer's getting at, what, what he's emphasising here, this is in the context of him painting a picture of a great high priest that, that, that identifies with us, that, that empathises with us. I think that what, what the writer's getting at here is that as a human, Jesus felt the full force of temptation. The temptation that Jesus felt was real temptation. When we read about Jesus in, in, in his 40-day wilderness experience, that was no holiday camp for Jesus. He was tempted, he was tested, he was tried. That was a tough ordeal for Jesus. When we read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there's perhaps a temptation, God, is there another way? Father, can you take this cup from me? Jesus felt weakness, he felt pain, he felt temptation just like you and just like me. And the writer goes on. He goes on because, because Jesus experienced what it is to be human. He's able to empathise with us. Now, when it comes to empathy, I'm sure we've all experienced a couple of different types of people. One kind of person might be Hey, you know, I, uh, I went to the doctors this week and I, I found this, they found this growth and I went and had uh, an ultrasound and they discovered this, this five centimetre lump in my stomach. And the person you're talking to, they says, oh man, that's terrible. You know, a few years ago, I went to the doctor myself and I found a 15 centimetre lump in my stomach. And, and before you know it, this person's kind of telling you all about their own experience and the, the, the conversation's kind of been a bit hijacked at that point. And often that comes from a really good place. This person's trying to share with you what for them feels like a more catastrophic set of circumstances in their life as a way of encouraging you because the underlying message is if if, if I manage to pull through a lump that's three times the size of yours, I'm sure you're going to come through this. Or somebody, you, you sit with somebody and, and you're telling them about the fact that you've been going through relationship challenges with your husband or your wife or with a friend. And they proceed to tell you about their relationship difficulties, which have been far more significant. Again, it often comes from a really good place. The person's trying to come alongside you and say, you know what, I've experienced far more catastrophic circumstances, but God brought me through, so be encouraged. I don't know about you, but that 
for me, when I'm sitting in one of those types of conversations and I'm the one that's just been to the doctor or I'm the one with the relationship challenge, I don't find that particularly helpful because the conversation becomes all about the other person. That's one way we can do empathy. I think the other way we can do empathy, the way we can empathise with somebody is to simply sit. And we do this. Just silence. We just sit. And we look into the eyes of the other person. We look into the eyes of the other person and we hear their story. And we hear their concern. And their story goes from our ears, through our head, into our hearts. And we're still looking into the person's eyes. And we're feeling something of what they're feeling. We're feeling some of their concern. We're feeling some of their pain. We're feeling some of their their anxiety. And we don't necessarily need to say anything at that point. Other than I'm here for you. Other than I care. Other than can I pray for you. I think that second kind of person is probably something a bit closer to what, 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 what I, how I, f- I feel Jesus empathises with us. Because he truly understands Jesus is a good listener. Jesus hears well. He comes alongside and he sits with you. He sits with you in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your struggle. He knows what it is to be human. Jesus knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to feel the struggle. He knows what it is to feel hurt. And and he cares deeply. He's not just a high lifted up, sitting up above the heavens, great high priest. He's a high priest who comes down and continues to get into the thick of it with you and with me. Jesus gets us. Jesus gets you. He understands. He knows us. And he's, and he's a high priest who's prepared to sit down next to you and empathise and listen and to sit with you in the depths of your struggle, in the depths of your pain, in the depths of your hurt. And this leads on to a second appeal. At this point, the writer of the Hebrews gives another appeal. And it's simply this. Let us then, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Because Jesus experienced weakness, because he knows what it is to experience temptation and trial, because Jesus empathises with us, we can approach the throne of grace with absolute confidence. Now this appeal, this appeal, let us approach. It's actually, it's actually an invitation to approach and continue approaching. Approach and continue approaching. This is not a one-off approach. This is come and keep on coming. 
Because drawing near to God is something we need to do continually. It's an ongoing part of what it means to be in relationship with somebody. I've, I've often thought this. Uh, when, when God does that work in us of giving us new birth through the work of his spirit, why doesn't at that point he just give us everything that we'll ever need? He knows everything that we need. Why doesn't he just give us at that point, make us somebody who's completely sanctified, the perfect article, fill us to the top so there's no more room and no holes in us that it's going to drain away? Why is it that he doesn't just do that for us? He's God, he can do absolutely anything. I think it's because he wants us to keep coming to him. It's as simple as that. He wants us to keep coming to him. He wants to be in continual communication. The creator of the universe wants to be in an intimate relationship with you. He wants us to approach and continue approaching. Come and continue coming. That's why there's this appeal here. Approach and keep on approaching. This is not a once-off thing. In the Old Testament, the high priest, like I said earlier, they were the only person that got to go into the most holy place. The place where they could come closest to the presence of God. They only got to come into the most holy place once a year. Once a year. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine us knowing what we know about God now, getting one shot a year? What would you do? What, What would your one day look like if you only got to come into the presence of God like that, into the most holy place once a year? But now, because we've got a better high priest, because we have a great high priest, now, Each and every one of us, not just one representative on behalf of the whole, but all of us, we get to come. We get to come regularly. We get to come into the very presence of God, into the most holy place imaginable. And he encourages us to do it continually. To do it continually. To do it daily. And on top of that, we can come with absolute confidence. We can come with boldness. And we come with confidence, we come with boldness, not because of anything that we have done, but because he's the one who sits on the throne. He's the one who rules. He's the one who's in charge. And because he's the one who rules, because he's the one in charge, he has all authority. He has all power. And because he has all authority, because he has all power, he's actually in a place to help us. He's actually in the place to help you when you do come. All we need to do is respond to that invitation. All we need to do is respond to the invitation. Approach the throne of grace. Come and keep on coming to the throne of grace. Now, if coming into the most holy place, if coming before the very throne of God causes you to get a bit of a lump in your throat because it's like, man, God, you know what I did the other day? I feel a bit uncomfortable about this whole idea of coming before your throne. Remember, it's a throne of grace. 
It's a throne of grace. So don't be reluctant to come to the throne of grace and ask for help. Don't be fearful that God will at that point rub your nose in whatever it is that you might have done or or whatever it was that you didn't do. God never rubs our nose in our weakness or in our failures because he knows himself. He has experienced what it is, what it is to be human, to experience weakness, to experience frailty. He knows what it is to experience temptation. So when we do come, when we do come to his throne of grace, we can be assured of receiving one thing this passage tells us. One thing, actually two things. Grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. When we do come with confidence, with boldness to the foot of his throne, he showers us with grace and mercy on every occasion that we come. Unlike the Jews, they needed to travel They'd have to make a pilgrimage to go to the temple of Jerusalem. We don't have to make special, pre- special pilgrimages. We can come wherever we are. We can come to him at any time. And we can come as we are. We don't have to fix ourselves up before coming. Because it's his throne of grace. And he showers us with that when we come. At the point when we need it most. So the more we come, the more we come to his throne of grace, the more time that we spend with Jesus, the deeper we grow, the deeper we grow. The book of Hebrews is about growth. It's actually, he encourages them to grow to maturity. The more we come before his throne of grace and receive his grace, receive his mercy, the deeper we grow. And the deeper we grow, the more we flourish, the more we flourish. This is not a hanging on by the fingertips kind of faith. This is a a faith we're encouraged to come to his throne of grace, to grow, to grow to maturity and to flourish. You know, we all need people. We all need people. We all need people who are trustworthy. We all need people who are safe. People who we can approach when we're facing difficult circumstances. People who can help us to make difficult decisions. People who can care for our well-being. People who just love us for us. And one of the benefits of being a part of a church family like this is we get to do that for one another. We get to care for one another. We get to help one another through difficult life situations. I've got a bunch of different people uh, in, in my life who I feel I can go to in those moments, people who I trust, people who I know care. But even though I have so many great people, family and friends that I, that I know I can go to, there are times when I feel like I just can't go to them. It's not appropriate to wake my wife up at two o'clock in the morning when I'm stressed and anxious and worried about a decision that needs to be made much less ring a friend at three o'clock in the morning to ask for some advice. Or there are times when I know that other people are under pressure. I know that they care. I know that they love me. I know that they're people that I've done a lot of, a lot of uh, journey with, but I know that they're busy. I know that they've got their own 
significant circumstances and so perhaps they don't have much capacity to help at that point. One of the things I love, love about this picture of Jesus as our great high priest is that I know that I can come to him with absolutely anything at any time. Two o'clock in the morning. I'm feeling stressed and I'm feeling anxious. I can talk to Jesus at that point. And I know that he's always got the capacity to do something. He's always got the capacity to do something. I can come to him. I can embrace him. And he embraces me at that point as I am. And he always, because he is the God who sits above the universe, who has all power, who has all authority, I know he's got the capacity. He's got the wisdom. He's got the power. He's got the strength, the ability to help me with absolutely anything that I might be facing in life at any given moment. You know, no matter how many good people each one of us have in our lives, Jesus is the only one who can offer us that kind of better life. He's the only one. He's the only one. The only one. Because he is the something better. So can I encourage you this morning to hold on to him, to embrace him, to embrace him. Can I encourage you this morning to come to him daily? Come as you are. Come as you are. You don't need to brush your hair. You don't need to clean yourself up. You don't need to deal with that junk in your life just yet. Just come to the throne of grace and see what he has for you. And you can come with confidence, not because you've got it all together, but because you've got a high priest who cares. You've got a high priest who has an abundant, who has an infinite amount of grace and mercy and he wants to shower it on you because he loves you. And the more we come, the more we come, the more we grow. And the more we grow, the more we become people who flourish. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, we just want to say thank you that you are such a great high priest. We want to say thank you because you are the one who holds all power and all authority. And because you hold all power and all authority, you are reconciling this world to yourself. You're reconciling people. You're reconciling us to yourself. But Jesus, we want to thank you that you came down to this earth, that you died the most humiliating, painful, torturous death. We want to thank you because you experienced weakness. We want to thank you because you experienced temptation. And because you experienced these things, Jesus... You're a great high priest who understands us. You're a great high priest who loves us. You get us. You understand us. You know us. And in spite of all of that, you still love us. This morning, we just want to say thank you. Lord, I want to pray for us this morning. You would help us to come. That you would help us to come and continue coming before your throne of grace. Lord, that we would come without fear. Lord, that we would come with confidence and boldness because of what you have done for us, because of who you are. 
Help us, Jesus, as we go out into this week and face difficult circumstances, perhaps difficult relational challenges, health challenges, difficulties at work or at school. Lord, I pray that in each of those circumstances, we'd be able to come to you, that we would rush to the foot of your throne of grace and that we would open our arms and allow you to shower us with your grace, with your mercy. Help us, Father God, to grow. Help us, Father God, to be people who are deeply rooted, people who grow to maturity, people who grow into mighty flourishing trees because we're people who come daily to your throne of grace. Amen.